Amen. Everyone can have a seat. Well, we are continuing our series, uh, it's hard to say through the book of Ezekiel because it's not really going in any particular order, but there's some really important themes in Ezekiel that uh, we are are thinking about. And we had a a class on Ezekiel in the fall, but there were some themes that came up out of there that I think are really unique uh, to that book, especially in the prophetic books, that we need to think about. Because there are going to be times when we find ourselves in a bit of a period of exile. And exile is something that uh, you don't know unless you've been through it. Maybe there's been a season of your life when God has felt extremely distant to you. Maybe it was a a time when a divorce happened or when a death happened that wasn't expected or when you felt like things were going in a certain direction and all of a sudden they're not anymore. Exile is something that, again, you kind of only understand if you've been through it and you would never want to go back to that season because it was extremely difficult. Maybe you learned some things that were good, but you would never choose to go back there. Exile is not getting stuck in traffic, and that's not fun. And there are frustrating things that happen to all of us, like throughout our day. They're like, this is a little frustrating. I mean, maybe the 405 rush hour does feel a little like exile. But um, when it comes to the real seasons of life that we would say, ooh, man, I do not ever want to go through that again. I don't want to experience that again. And the people of Israel, as Ezekiel is writing this book and communicating this message from God, He's writing at a time when they would have experienced this profoundly and significantly. Uh, So we talked last week about how this book is written um, around the the exile that occurs in 587. So if you learn nothing else from this series, just learn 587, all right? Say that one time. All right, next week you guys better have that down. All right, 587. um, So 587 years-ish before the coming of Christ, uh, the nation of Israel gets overthrown by Babylon. First, there's this deportation that happens that actually Ezekiel is in, and he's in Babylon. And then 10 years later, Babylon comes back in again and just like smacks the whole city down, including destroying the temple, which we consider, I think, our church buildings to be important, but nowhere near what it was like for a Jewish believer. I mean, it is the center of where God is. So much of the Old Testament is written about, here is how you are supposed to protect my presence. This is what this is supposed to look like. You're supposed to build this in this way. This is how you are to worship me. And then all of a sudden, the place where you worship God is gone. So what are you supposed to do? And what do you do when God seems really distant from you? What do you do maybe when there's this thing that you really counted on and like, honestly, maybe if you're honest, worshiped a little bit and now it's gone. In those seasons when we feel a little hint of exile, it's those moments when up is down and down is up. You're not sure exactly how you're supposed to take this next step. And what's fascinating about the book of Ezekiel is in the midst of this, Ezekiel writes with a lot of hope. It's towards the end of the book because there's a lot of mess that is uh, leading up to it as Ezekiel is talking about some of the ways that the people have alienated God. But there are these interesting messages of hope that I'm going to consider a little bit of one of them this morning. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we'll get there uh, in just a minute. We don't need it up there quite yet, Simon. When I was a kid, my brother and I on road trips used to play a game called the fly where we would pretend like we had a little fly in our hands and we would go into the other person's section of the car and then you would use the fly swatter to smack the fly down. We would play this game just uh, for a few hours to uh, kill the time and eventually it ended up with um, punches thrown back and forth and tears usually from Brent, Um, but... (laughs) 
One of the best part of being preachers, you can tell a version of the story, and Brent's not here to defend himself. But we would play that game, and it's very interesting how, you know, you would get to this point, it's like now you're over into, like, his side of the car, his space. And even though that's something that you play as a kid in various ways, all different kinds of forms, that really becomes our life in a lot of ways. So much of life is about demarcating space, if we think about it. Like, my property line goes to here. This is where I live. This is how this is supposed to be. I paid for this land. And living in a place like Los Angeles, you're thinking, I pay that much for that little space? Like, what are you talking about? That is unbelievable. And will I ever be able to afford my own space? That just seems, no way, that'll never even happen. It's unrealistic, and it's so hard. I want to one day have, like, that space that is my own. And if we're honest, we spend a lot of time thinking about that maybe dreaming about it, and wishing, perhaps, that you had a better situation. And then you see friends back in maybe the home state that you came from, and you think, how did that person afford a space? That is unbelievable. And one of the first words that kids learn is mine, right? It becomes about, this is mine, and this is not yours. That happens when Carter sees me stealing some of his food. It doesn't really uh, work all that well. And then just on a global level, we have territories, we have boundaries. Much of the violence in the world happens because someone crosses a line, which just seems a little ridiculous, right? It seems so childish. But so much of our life is around this space is mine, and that space is yours, and you better not cross that line. What the scriptures, I think, want us to think of is a more holistic scale and to think that all of that is a human illusion. That this world, even though it makes sense for us to order it and put some structure in perhaps to help us, those things that we can spend so much time stressed out about, thinking about, and wondering why you have to pay so much rent for it, that stuff scripture says is ultimately illusion. And it might matter for you in the here and now. And it's important for you to live in a safe space, perhaps. But even if you're somebody who's a billionaire and has homes all over the world in exotic places and you own lots of different kinds of spaces, eventually you're going to die. And Ecclesiastes would say, then your dumb son's going to get it. What's the point? (laughs) And what are you supposed to do? You can spend your life protecting it and drawing all these important boundaries and so worried about your space that it can consume you. I think Scripture invites us into a different kind of story. So much of the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel being promised a land, getting a land, then leaving the land, and then coming back. to It's all this part about land and space and how they they have this thing, and they're going to have it for a little while, and they're going to lose it. And that's where we find the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is reflecting on what happens after you lose the space. What happens when it seems like God is is distant and and not with you. What happens when you are in exile? And again, what's profound about the book of Ezekiel is how much hope there is at the end. Because it's likely that even as bad of a moment as you have ever had in your life, and maybe you've had some really hard stuff, and if you were to share about whatever it is with you, I would go, whoa, that's like the worst one in the room. Maybe I would say that. But for the nation of Israel, to have the temple destroyed, 
to be living in a foreign land, to be slaves. That's about as bad as it gets, right? And you might have had a bad, rough stretch in your life, but this is one of those moments, I think, that Scripture maybe encourages us to think about. Okay, you might have had a rough time, but even in the midst of that, I believe Scripture's encouraging us to think with lenses of hope. So Ezekiel 34, verses 25 through 31 says this, I will make a covenant of peace with my people and drive away the dangerous animals from the land. Then they will be able to camp safely in the wildest places and sleep in the woods without fear, which I could never do that. But uh, I will bless my people and their homes around my holy hill. And in the proper season, I will send the showers they need. There will be showers of blessing. The orchards and fields of my people will yield bumper crops and everyone will live in safety. When I've broken the chains of slavery and rescued them from those who enslaved them, then they will know that I am the Lord. They will no longer be prey for other nations, and wild animals will no longer devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will frighten them. And I will make their land famous for its crops, so my people will never again suffer from famines or the insults of foreign nations. In this way, they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they will know that they, the people of Israel, are my people, says the Sovereign Lord. You are my flock, the sheep of my pasture. You are my people, and I am your God. I, the Sovereign Lord, have spoken. So this is written, and God is proclaiming this to people who find themselves in exile. And it begins with this statement, which seems so counter-exile, I'm giving you this covenant of peace. I know you now feel like you don't have a home, that you've been removed from your home. You don't really know where religiously you stand anymore, how you're ever going to worship me again. But as you find yourself in this situation, which is extremely stressful, which is dangerous and hard, I will give you this covenant of peace. Which is an interesting way to phrase it. That phrasing occurs only four times in the entire Bible, this idea of a covenant of peace. Typically, a covenant was all about the land and how the land will one day be yours. But this is interesting. Four different times, once in Genesis, once in Isaiah, and twice in Ezekiel, this idea of a covenant of peace comes up. And it's interesting, too, what happens next. The word that's used there, it probably is translated in your Bibles with, but a better understanding of the Hebrew word there is for. So I'm going to give this covenant of peace not with the people like we all do this together. It's a blessing from God. I I give you this covenant of peace for the people, which is a pretty significant difference because it's God saying, this is this blessing that you have, that you have the ability to work with that is a gift. Like it's not, maybe it'll come and it might come eventually. It's this is for the people. This is a blessing that you didn't earn, that you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily like own in any sort of way, but this is for you. And then the covenant is described, the peace that they're going to enjoy, that savage beasts are going to be gone, that trees will yield fruit, that they're going to be rescued from their oppressors. And God lists this pretty beautifully. You don't have to be in fear of wild animals anymore. You're going to have good crops, and you're not under the thumb of another nation. And these are good promises, especially for people in that time and place, especially in a place where food was more scarce. God says, here are the promises that are part of this covenant of peace. And it is for you. 
And the question that you might have as you read this passage and try to figure out exactly what Ezekiel means is, did this ever really happen? Number one, no fear of savage beasts. There's still issues with animals in the world, right? I mean, they're not maybe prevalent. But I wouldn't say that necessarily happened. Good crops on the land. In fact, Babylon came in, and once uh, Israel gets back to the land, they see that Babylon has destroyed uh, all of their crops and poisoned their fields. So for centuries, they weren't able to grow great crops. And not under another nation. That one just kind of continues. First, it's Babylon, and then it's the Persians, uh, led by Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, who comes through, yeah, he came through and wiped that out. And then after the the Persians come through, Colin Farrell comes in um, as Alexander the Great, very dreamy in that picture. Um, And it just continues. Eventually the Romans come to that area. I didn't get another picture, but eventually, you're like, who are you going with that one? Could have gone a lot of different ways, but... It's just this continuous cycle. If it's not Babylon, it's Persia. If it's not Persia, then it's Rome. A theologian says, uh, the Jewish people may be the best proof in the world that God exists. Because, unfortunately, the Jews have carried a really difficult burden throughout history. And that land specifically just kind of keeps just turning over and over and over again. So if you think about these promises in the way of like, okay, literally, is this ever going to happen? You might think God's a little bit like a presidential politician, like 0 for 3 on these promises, right? Like there's all these things on the campaign trail that all the people say, no, we're going to make this happen. We're going to rid you of whatever. And then it's like, oh, then you get into office. It doesn't really happen. So if you think of, if this is about like literal promises that, you know, this is how it's going to be, then have we really experienced it? Has that group ever experienced it? And I think if we think of it in terms of literal promises that this is, you know, this is it, this is how it's going to be, I think the answer would be no. But what if we thought differently about this, that these aren't like literal offerings, but instead they're metaphors? Because really, land and like a home isn't about dirt, and it's not about a structure that you live in. Ultimately, that doesn't really matter other than the fact that it gives you a sense of security and it gives you a place of peace. At the end of the day, you can go to your home after working a really hard day and just kind of chill out and feel safe and secure. The actual structure and the dirt doesn't really matter. It's about the feeling of security. It's about this feeling that you have, that you have this feeling of home, right? So what if we thought of these three things more in a metaphorical sense? Go ahead, Simon, go to that next slide. What if we thought of there will be no wild animals? Like, I'll give you what it means to feel safe in the world. There will be good crops. I will help you to feel security. That You're going to have your next meal taken care of. There will be no oppressors. I will teach you what true freedom is. I think there's the things that God is talking about in this. And then there's the deeper meaning behind these things. Because I know people who are in very safe situations who feel terrorized. 
And I know people who are in prison who feel very free. It's not just about whatever literally is in front of you and what actually is happening. It's about having a deeper sense of what I believe God offers us. And that's where that preposition, I think, comes in so importantly, that this is a blessing that is for us. This is for the people of God who will have this different perspective and think of it a little bit more metaphorically. I mean, think about the United States as compared to the nation of Israel, what they were experiencing, some of the hard things that they were going through. We are doing way better on those three things than people in that time. And way better. There will be no wild animals. I don't know about you. I don't really have a bear on the way to work. You know, I mean, if I work at the zoo, maybe there would be some wild animals to worry about. There will be good crops. I personally, I don't know about you, but most of my life, I've not had really all my life, I've never had to worry about food. I don't think about, you know, where's my next meal going to come from? Uh, There will be no oppressors. Of course, there are always kind of rumors of what might happen in the world, but especially compared to many parts of the world and in the history of humanity, we're one of the safest cultures. I mean, I know that there are things that we need to be worried about. But as far as us compared to the nation of Israel, like in that time, as this is written, we are doing pretty dang good on these three things. Yet we still struggle with anxiety and worry and trying to figure out where it is that we are going to have peace. And maybe the offering that God gives to the people is a peace that passes understanding that Paul writes about in Philippians. That even though there will be wild animals, there won't always be just easy things for you to see God's plan with the crops around you, but there's going to be things that sometimes you worry about. There is a kind of peace that is more available to you even as those things aren't always exactly as you would want them to be. Maybe it would be helpful to think through, and I'm thankful to Barbara Rogue for her clay pot that we smashed last week. Uh, But this teaching, I think the book of Ezekiel, lends itself uh, well to some props. And this is a a mold cider candle, so it's going to smell nice. This is a very small candle, and it should be working. There we go. There we go. There we go. Some of you, this is your favorite part of the sermon. You don't have to see me for this part. (laughs) Now you can a little bit, a little little Halloween (laughs) style. But as you think about the, the peace of God, the peace that I would say is described in this story It's a lot like this candle, that it's small, and it doesn't really seem all that powerful, but if you were just to focus on that thing, it's pretty amazing how much it lights up, that everybody in this room can see it. But just like this candle, the peace that I believe God offers us is pretty fragile. If you don't take care of it, if you don't watch over it, if you don't make it a habit to like really be dedicated to it and to think about it and put your head in that right space and think about the way that God offers you that peace, just one little thing and it's gone, right? 
Whatever it is, whether you're anxious about your next paycheck or anxious about your job or anxious about your relationships, whatever it is, if you allow yourself to just constantly be swayed by whatever wind seems to be happening, there's going to constantly be this, this blowing out and not living in the way that I believe God has offered us in this story. And what would it look like for you to have a deeper sense of, of peace and to learn how to protect it and to build your life in such a way that even if there's beasts, and I'm trying to do this in the dark, all right, we're safe. Even if there's beasts, even if there are things that are stressful and filled, that fill you with anxiety and worry, what if you could have a different perspective? What if you could build your life? Kind of get it lit again. Here we go. What if you could build your life in such a way that even if there are wild beasts, things that cause you to live with anxiety, things that really you're worried about and, and nervous for, and you're trying to figure out your future and trying to do all this stuff, what if you could build your life in such a way that not every little thing that happens blows your peace out? As hard as I blow on this thing, it's not going to work. <sighs> Maybe if I surprise it. <sighs> And we could do this all day. But because of the the structure around this, and what if you could build your life in such a way? What if you could live with this kind of peace? And I believe Ezekiel is saying, even when life is so difficult and so hard for you people in exile, not just because everything's going to be gone and everything's going to be fine forever, but because of the way that you will build your life and structure yourself, you're not going to be blown out every five minutes. I think about some of the stressful things that have happened in my life and the things that I was really worried about. When I was in sixth grade and transferring to middle school, uh, the middle school dances started. And I was very nervous about the middle school dance because everybody went to the dances and you're like, oh no. And I wasn't the ladies man that I am today. So I really struggled. That's easier to say in the dark. Uh, It's really... I was filled with anxiety for that something, and I'm going to be the only one without a girl there. And then we show up, and it's only the sixth graders who are there, and none of them have dates. The seventh and eighth graders all know that it's not really that cool to go to these things. Maybe it's different now, but back then, and we all just stood on separate sides of the wall, like is the picture. And every once in a while, there would be a brave guy who would get out, and we danced the Macarena all together, perhaps, but it wasn't really that enjoyable of an experience. But I remember in the weeks leading up to that, I was nervous about that. I was thinking, I'm going to be the only one. And it's easy to look back and laugh at that later and think how ridiculous it was, and it's really not that big of a deal. But what are the things now that you're worrying about and letting mess with your peace that 10 or 15 years down the line, you're going to think, why did I waste my time? Why did I let that get me to such a place that I didn't have the peace that God is offering me. Because the beasts change. The things that you're going to need to worry about change. But what would it look like for you to structure your life around a deeper sense of God's peace? What would it look like for you to not think about everything that you should be worrying about? Because every night on the 11 o'clock news, there's going to be this new thing that you're taking that could kill you if you take too much of it. Or at least that's what they tell you. 
So much of our world, I believe, is built on, on fear and anxiety, and we need to have a different perspective to truly claim the peace that I believe we all need. We can't be worrying about all the things that people tell us to worry about. You can't say, well, I'm going to be peaceful once all of these three really important things get figured out. God's peace, I believe, is more available to you in this moment, even as things aren't perfect, than you ever could have imagined. God, I believe, says to these people who still are going to have another 50 years in exile, who are going to be taken over by different nation after different nation after different nation, he says to these people, my peace is for you. And I believe the same peace is available to us. What would it look like for you to structure your life in such a way that as every morning as the winds start to blow, as you leave the, the church environment where we once again get to recognize our priorities and think about our relationship with God, what would it look like for you to live your entire life with this structure around that even as things get hard, as sometimes we're going to need special doses of, of our Christian community to remind us of the hope that we truly have? What would it look like if the peace of God truly existed in your heart? May we learn to walk with a different sense of peace in the world, to not be blown by every little thing, to understand that so many of the places that we look for security really are just another rat race. May we find our security, our hope, and our foundation in God. We're going to sing now, I Need Thee Every Hour which I think is a really appropriate song as we think through what it looks like to live in a world that sometimes is filled with anxiety. And as we sing this song, I hope that it is a time of confession where you say, once again, perhaps, God, I'm going to let you be my peace and my security. Let's stand and sing together.